This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome to the Rand Corporation. I'm Michael Rich, Rand's Executive Vice President. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our speaker, Seth Jones. Seth is a senior political scientist at Rand. He is a leading expert on Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Al Qaeda. He is a prolific writer on these topics. He is the author of In the Graveyard of Empires: America's War in Afghanistan, and also How Terrorist Groups End, just to name two. Over the past few years, uh, Seth has spent a lot of time on the ground in Afghanistan, working on r- matters related to counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and stability operations. Since the death of Osama bin Laden, uh, Seth has been invited by the Congress multiple times to offer his perspective on what's next for Al Qaeda and the region, and he's here now to share his insights with you. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Seth Jones. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you, Monica, and thank you all for showing up tonight. Michael didn't mention that I actually met my wife at Rand, so. Um, actually, the first day she was working in human resources, so Rand has actually uh, impacted most elements of my life. Um, I have never lived on the West Coast. Uh, I'm an East Coast person from uh, the New England area. I did live in Chicago at one point, where I went to graduate school. That's about the closest I've come living to uh, Los Angeles. And for anybody who hasn't been to Chicago, um, if you ever make it down to Hyde Park and you walk around the University of Chicago, I know there are some alums here right now. You see two kinds of uh, shirts. One are the Nobel Prize winners, mostly from the economics department, Milton Friedman, and a range of others. The other are the uh, uh, T-shirts that say on the front, the University of Chicago, and on the back it says, "Where fun comes to die." <laughs> I, that's that, that's my experience in graduate school, and I I I think when I talk to the uh, Talk to the party graduate students at uh, at at Rand here, just across the uh, breezeway here. Uh, that's not quite the experience they they get here, so that's a good thing. Uh, what 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 I'd like to do today is talk a little bit more seriously about um, the uh, uh, death of Osama bin Laden, what that means for homeland security in the United States, um, and what some of the broader trends are against uh, Al Qaeda more generally against the homeland, more specifically, and what this means for the future. And I promise you, we didn't coordinate it. If, 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 you, if you woke up to the news this morning, you may have heard that uh, al-Qaeda announced that uh, it has now formally replaced uh, Osama bin Laden with Ayman al-Zawahiri, the Egyptian, uh, actually turned out after bin Laden, um, uh, turned out to be quite appropriate for tonight's uh, uh, discussion. That was not, though, coordinated uh, with, uh, with that organization. What I want to do first is talk a little bit about what al-Qaeda looks like today, because it's an organization that is very different, I think, than what we saw on September 11th. It's an, it, it's an organi- uh, organization that you'll see, I'll build a, a, a series of concentric circles, rings of concentric circles. We'll start off with, with what is at the core, based mostly in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border area still. That's where Zawahiri exists today. That's where the bulk of that organization continues to operate. I'll give you a little bit of a picture of the key individuals 
um, and the affiliates a little bit later on. But that's really the central node. What we have, as you start to expand that, is a range of affiliated groups. These are ones we hear about in the news based in areas like Yemen, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and a range of other locations. They have a direct relationship with Al-Qaeda. Uh, they, have, uh, they may receive guidance. We've actually seen in, in some of the uh, uh, information taken from the thumb, some of the thumb drives from uh, bin Laden's house uh, that uh, uh, a lot of strategic-level questions were pushed up to Osama bin Laden through his chief operating officer, Ati Abdel Rahman. He would answer them and push them back down, issues of strategic guidance. Uh, so that's the affiliate groups. The, the next ring is what you might call the allied groups. These are a range of, uh, of groups. If you go back to 2010, and you remember uh, in uh, uh, the spring of 2010, there was a near attack in Times Square by an individual named Faisal Shassad, who actually got the bomb into Times Square in the back of his SUV, put it into Times Square on a Saturday night in a packed area, actually across the street from a, uh, uh, from a, uh, uh, a New York City police car, and then detonated it. The initial detonator went off. The bomb did not. He was trained by a group called the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, which is an affiliate. That means it cooperates with al-Qaeda in various ways, uh, but it is not a, uh, a, a, an affiliated group. Sorry, it's an, it's an allied group. Sometimes cooperates, sometimes doesn't when it's in its interests. Another ring would be uh, what we would call a, a allied networks. This isn't an official group, but these are networks of individuals. A good example of this would be um, the 2009 plot in the United States that was foiled, uh, that was led by Najibullah Zazi. Uh, Zazi radicalized with a range of individuals in Flushing, New York City. He then went for training in Pakistan. He came back to conduct uh, triple suicide bombings on the New York City subway. He was captured two weeks before the attack. Uh, that attack went all the way back to senior al-Qaeda leaders in Pakistan. But it was a radicalized network operating in the United States. So in that sense, what we have is a network that has the ability to go back and touch central al-Qaeda, but it's a much looser, disparate group of individuals. And then finally, we, we have what we might call the inspired networks. The best case we've seen in the United States uh, might be the Fort Dix plot in 2007, if you remember that. This is just outside of Philadelphia in, in southern New Jersey. These are a range of uh, uh, Albanians and others that had radicalized. Uh, they had listened to some of the sermons of... Anwar al-Awlaki, the American Yemeni, uh, who's based now in Yemen, uh, his Constance of Jihad lecture. Uh, they had no contact at all with any senior al-Qaeda leader. They never went anywhere for training. In fact, their training was done in the Poconos of uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how they got captured, because that's actually quite interesting. Um, but they never, they was, there was never any direct contact. They were simply inspired individuals. And so what we see with these rings here is you get a very diffuse network. You do have a core element that's based in uh, right around the Afghan-Pakistan border areas in Pakistan, but you also get a range of groups that are tied to it in different ways, networks, looser networks across the globe, and then individuals that are simply inspired. That's the reality of al-Qaeda today. And that, I would say, is the organization that is increasingly 
uh, moving towards as uh, as Al Qaeda tries to uh, recover from its attack against um, uh, and, and and the killing of Osama bin Laden. Now, what does this look like in practical terms, and what are their goals? What we see today is still a focus on trying to establish a caliphate, at least one country at a time. Um, and you see in a range of areas from about North Africa uh, up through areas of the Middle East and into South Asia, uh, there have been some efforts to try and do this in Indonesia and the Philippines. The bulk of the area we're talking about is this area of North Africa, the Middle East, and, and South Asia, overthrowing a range of different governments and uh, trying to establish their version. If you read individuals like Said Khutub of, of, uh, of a Sunni version of Islam, very radical interpretation of Sunni Islam. That's still the goal. And in fact, the best, the best exemplar who has laid this out over the past 10 years is now the leader of Al-Qaeda. It's been Zawahiri. Zawahiri has been the gold mine of laying out the ideology of Al-Qaeda. He is now taken over as the leader. His job has been to lay this goal out. So, he, uh, so what we have now is the chief ideologue primarily uh, running the organization today. Now what it looks like is, as you can see from the slide here, You've got a range of the major leaders up here. So uh, bin Laden was killed. Ilyas Kashmiri, the head of operations, was killed uh, about a week and a half ago in a drone strike in Pakistan. But we still have a lot of that senior leadership intact. You have Ayman al-Zawahiri, who has taken over as leader. Uh, we have Atiyah al-Abdul-Rahman, uh, Libyan, who plays the role of chief operating officer. Al-Qaeda still operates uh, much like a business. It has a range of shuras or committees uh, that are involved in its finances, in its propaganda, in its media, in its military operations, and other key logistics. And within those different committees or shuras, uh, it, uh, it has a hierarchy, a chain of command, an individual. So up in the top right, we have uh, Abu Yahya al-Libi. He's the head of the spiritual branch of al-Qaeda. He's the one who issues fatwas, uh, religious fatwas. He, unlike Zawahiri, is actually has a trained pedigree in, in uh, Islam. So he... He is the primary uh, officer. Within that core group, we, we do have Americans, um, unfortunately. We have, uh, we have Adam Gadan from uh, the Winchester, California area, who works just under Abu Yahya Libby. He radicalized in Orange County. And uh, I- I- interesting case because his father uh, is, is Jewish. His mother is Christian. He grew up in a Christian household. He uh, converted later on uh, after he became interested in, and I'm not making this up, death metal. He was interested in groups like Cannabis Corpse. Uh, I'm not, not much of a death metal fanatic, but he goes from, from Judaism to, to Christianity to death metal to Al-Qaeda. So uh, that's one of the more, I would say, interesting radicalization processes of, a, uh, of an Al-Qaeda leader. Um, but we also have uh, another American uh, who's become very prolific in operations. Uh, I don't have him up there, but his name is Adnan al-Shukrajuma. But the point here, and he's from the Broward County area of Florida. point here is that we have a range of Americans who uh, are actively plotting attacks in the United States uh, based in that area up in Pakistan. We also have, if you look at the affiliated groups, the key areas we're talking about are areas where you actually have active, ongoing struggles. It's certainly part of the Arab Spring. We have, um, we've got Libya. You've got uh, uh, 
Yemen, which, uh, which is in intense turmoil right now. And I would say just on the subject of the Arab Spring, there was certainly in the Washington area, which is where I'm from, in, and within the government, within Congress, there was, there was uh, a fair amount of hope immediately that, that the Arab Spring was a dagger uh, targeting al-Qaeda, that it was a demonstration that al-Qaeda did not win out in this war of ideas. I would say I would be careful in coming to any conclusions yet because what we don't know is how most of these countries will end up. It is an intense struggle right now across uh, uh, Libya, across Yemen, across parts of Egypt for ultimate control of those governments. And how they come down, Yemen would be a good example, how they come down, uh, a weak government in some of these uh, uh, locations would certainly have, uh, I think, very helpful prognosis for al-Qaeda operatives across uh, Yemen. I mean, they operate mostly around the Gulf of Aden. Um, and we also have a range of others. Uh, the one I wanted to draw, draw attention to is Anwar al-Awlaki. Uh, you've probably heard about him in the media. He, was, uh, he, he came to the United States, uh, went to school in Colorado, um, then moved to San Diego, also lived in Washington, in the Washington, D.C. area. But what's interesting about these individuals, this is part of this war of idea struggle I'll come to in a second, is they come across as individuals who are pure, um, uh, that, 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 are, that spend most of their day living uh, without material goods. But when you start digging beneath the surface, uh, you find a lot more complicated issues. So with Shukajuma that I mentioned earlier, he was arrested in Broward County for beating up girls. They were his sisters, but badly beating them up, was pulled off to prison. Alaki was arrested twice, and his court records are actually available, for soliciting prostitutes. Uh, now, by my count, if somebody's arrested twice for soliciting prostitutes, they probably have a problem. So that is your al- one of your al-Qaeda leaders in Yemen, uh, and that gives you an indication of his background. Now, um, uh, again, when we come back to this war of ideas, I-, I don't know how much we've pushed that information out, and maybe it doesn't matter, but uh, certainly these individuals who publicly try to claim to be something, when you dig beneath the surface, it may be something quite different. What I'd like to do is spend a few minutes looking at some of the more serious efforts against al-Qaeda over the last several years to give us a sense of what has worked and what has not. And I'm just going to hit the surface. So I suspect during the question and answer session we may uh, dig deeper into some of these issues. But I I do want to say very strongly, and I mean this sincerely, uh, the threat to the homeland is serious. Um, and as we'll see with some of these plots uh, over the last three, four years, uh, we have come very close to being hit uh, in, in, in several cases. You, you're not going to be able to read this. These are a range of, uh, of the thwarted plots, and in a few cases, thwarted means the bomb didn't go off. Um, I'm going to highlight three of them here. I'm just going to walk you through a little bit of these plots. There are many others that I could go into and that we could talk about, but I wanted to highlight three of them. Just to give you a sense, the first one is a transatlantic plot. This takes place in 2006. Uh, a range of, uh, uh, this is a, if, if we go back to that initial chart, this is a British network uh, of Pakistanis that radicalize in the UK and decide, as you see with that slide here, what they're aiming to do is take down seven different aircraft going from 
uh, Heathrow to Montreal, New York, Washington, Chicago, Toronto, and San Francisco. Now, the way they're going to do this, because they've been monitoring the changes that have gone on at TSA and other uh, and, and airport security, they build uh, a bomb with hydrogen peroxide, TATP bomb, that uh, they're going to put in the British equivalent of Gatorade bottles. This is Lucasade, uh, Lucasade bottles. They're going to color the liquid uh, to make it look like um, uh, like a sports drink, and they're going to bring it on the plane separately. They're carrying batteries, wires, and other components of the bomb. And in the uh, in the bathroom of the airplane, seven different airplanes, two different bottles in each plane. They're going to put it all together and detonate. Uh, the British, thankfully, in conducting a range of surveillance of other individuals stumble upon this plot and then dedicate several months of 24-7 surveillance with help from the United States because they needed help in monitoring email accounts, phone calls, uh, text messages back to Pakistan. Now, Pakistan becomes quite important and interesting in this case because, and we've seen this in several other instances, where these are not just uh, uh, homegrown individuals. They are texting back to uh, their al-Qaeda handler. In this case, it was an individual named Rashid Ralph, texting back on the specific quantities of hydrogen peroxide they needed to uh, put together to make the bomb um, as they're making it. So this was a, really an ongoing tactical level engagement. Uh, the, the British find out about it. They're using Yahoo accounts, so there are legal efforts then to get access to the email accounts. Uh, in August of 2006, they take down the plotters. Part of this effort, actually, in taking them down was also what we're seeing uh, is a key part of this. And we're now seeing some changes in law enforcement in the United States as well. Uh, real serious efforts to reach out to communities to get assistance in uh, not spying on individuals, but getting help on when they see something wrong. In this case, it was a neighbor who saw plants wilting uh, around a house because they were building a bomb. Uh, the uh, uh, large amounts of chemicals were actually affecting plants in the vicinity, and, and a, uh, r- a responsible individual called law enforcement and reported it. That was another tip, and they found the bomb-making factory that way. Uh, another case, real interesting is the Fort Dix plot. This was, if you go back to that initial chart, this was a case where you had uh, uh, a range of individuals with no direct connection to al-Qaeda, but had decided, partly because they had gone to Al-Aki, he's our, um, he's our uh, San Diego um, uh, individual, who had uh, uh, taken advantage, and Al-Aki's been pretty good at this in general, taken advantage of the social media um, he's got active websites. He's on uh, YouTube. He down, downloaded sermons on YouTube. He uses uh, Facebook. Uh, he's got most of social media. He's got he's got uh, a lot of the propaganda out there and an effort to recruit. Well, through those medium, never communicates at all over email. Uh, the individuals in particular listens to a, a multiple-part series called The Constants of Jihad. They radicalize in southern New Jersey. And the tip here was a pretty good law enforcement relationship with the community in southern New Jersey, in the Cherry Hill area. A, an individual named Brian Morgenstern, who worked at Circus City, uh, got a 8-millimeter tape one morning. And it was, uh, s- someone handed him a tape. They wanted him to convert it into a DVD. And as he's making the transition, he sees a range of individuals 
in the Poconos yelling Allahu Akbar and firing AK-47s and thinks, this does not look right. (laughs) So he calls the police. The police then mount a pretty serious investigation. They then call in the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, The FBI used multiple informants, pushes them into the cell. Uh, They end up uh, getting enough information through wiretaps to uh, convict uh, the, the key individuals. But in that case, again, you had good outreach to the community. You had pretty good intelligence. And in this case, the uh, focus of the attack was on a range of military facilities in, in the uh, Philadelphia, southern New Jersey area. This was a serious plot. This was very much uh, like the, uh, if you remember, the major Hassan plot at Fort Hood that happened in 2009, except this was that Fort Hood shooting on steroids because these guys were using multiple AK-47s, and there were, a, there were about eight or nine people that were likely to uh, conduct the attack. So uh, it would have been, uh, instead of roughly a dozen individuals killed, it would have been a lot more uh, at Fort Hood. Uh, the last one, and one of the more interesting ones, is the more recent case of Najibullah Zazi. Now, Zazi grows up in New York City, in Queens, in Flushing, near JFK Airport. He radicalizes, again, primarily just social media. He gets access to a range of lectures from Alaki. He sees Zawahiri and radicalizes in the United States. He then goes on August 28, uh, 2008. He lands in uh, Pakistan where he decides with two other Americans he wants to go fight with the Taliban. Uh, they get in a car, uh, taxi, they get to the border and Pakistani police then pull them out of the car ask them a range of questions, and throw them back into the Peshawar area. Don't, don't actually put them in prison for more than about three or four days. Uh, they go back to Peshawar. They're recruited eventually because they start asking family members. Uh, Zazi was originally from Afghanistan, uh, but his family now, uh, much of his family uh, lives in the Peshawar area. So, so they start making inroads about how to get to Afghanistan, to find another way. He gets recruited by al-Qaeda. They take him to North Waziristan uh, in the tribal areas along the Afghan-Pakistan border where he meets with Salih al-Samali, who's the head of external operations, probably the most difficult al-Qaeda position right now because it doesn't really last very long. I think the average length of time somebody makes it in in the al-Qaeda number three is six to eight months, and and that's about your uh, time frame before, um, before, before you're deceased. That he meets Sali al Somali in, in North Waziristan. Uh, Rashid Ralph, who was involved in the 2006 transatlantic plot that we saw earlier. And then our uh, friend from Broward County, uh, Florida, Adnan uh, El Shukrajuma, who beat his sisters up. He, uh, uh, they, they convince him that, you know what, there are a lot of people who are going to volunteer with the Taliban. What we want you to do, especially because you're from New York, we want you to put on suicide vests or a backpack bombs, walk onto the New York subway and blow yourselves up. And they agree to do that. And, and this, is, this is 2008. So they go through a series of training camps in South Waziristan. They learn how to make bombs. Um, and, and then in January of 2009, they fly back to the United States. Uh, Zazi lands, and he starts building his bomb. Now, he's smart about this because he knows that New York Police Department uh, and the FBI and the broader Joint Terrorism Task Force in New York are probably going to get a hold, get wind, because their community relations are pretty good. They're going to get wind of this. So he decides he's going to move to Aurora, Colorado, outside of Denver. 
And he builds then his bomb. Actually, it's very similar to what we saw with the transatlantic plotters and the successful 2005 London attacks. He builds a TATP bomb with hydrogen peroxide. He actually makes the bomb at a hotel in the Aurora, Colorado area. And he sends an email in September of 2009 to somebody who is being watched by both the British and the Americans back in Pakistan, an al-Qaeda facilitator, and he says in coded language that the wedding is ready. And, and he gives the rough date. They want to do this by the end of Ramadan. So you have now the U.S. intelligence agencies now alerting the FBI in both New York City, where it looks like the attack is going to take place, and Denver, Colorado, where he actually is, that they have a week and a half to find this guy and his two individuals, his accomplices, before they walk onto a subway in New York City and detonate. And they were going to do it. So uh, 24-7 surveillance. They watch him drive all the way to New York. Uh, And in that case, obviously, with help from a range of the communities, end up arresting. He actually admits everything now. The the, the trial was a short one because he admitted uh, admitted, uh, uh, everything along those lines. But in that case, good intelligence, uh, good effective outreach to the communities that ended up being key to the successful uh, uh, unpacking this plot. There are many others we could talk about, but I wanted to highlight a few of them for two reasons. One is the threat is still very serious the threat from Pakistan and from Yemen, where Alaki is located, are probably the two most serious areas right now. But we've had pretty good effective intelligence in un- unpacking some of these plots, getting wind of them, and pretty good outreach in some cases to local communities who have provided information. Now, there are less successful plots that we could certainly talk about later. But I wanted to move on to another component of this, which is also uh, probably not on the radar screen of most Americans, but it is a very important part of the struggle. And it really gets into the realm of ideas. And I wanted to at least highlight very briefly uh, Saeed Imam Abdulaziz al-Sharif, Dr. Fadl. Uh, He was uh, the original uh, leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. His number two was now Al-Qaeda's number one, Ayman al-Zawahiri. He was born in Egypt, so he's an Egyptian. Uh, and he puts out a range of the, the, uh, the most important influential Al-Qaeda ideological uh, doctrine, really outside of Said Hutub and several others. His primer in preparing for jihad was extremely influ- in, uh, influential. He was based in Pakistan. Uh, He was involved in Iran during the uh, origins of al-Qaeda. What's important along this front is about 1997, he comes out with a book called Rationalizing Jihad in Egypt and the World. And what he says, among other things, and one of the quotes, the second one down, blowing up of hotels, buildings, and public transportations is not permitted. What he does in this book, and it spurs a massive debate, is say, you know what? I was once a member of, Al- of Al-Qaeda, and particularly a member of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. I know personally Zawahiri. Our kids played together. He is not a legitimate uh, Muslim. Uh, the ideology that Al-Qaeda propagates across the world is not legitimate. 
I know it because I wrote the doctrine for it. And it causes a major dispute. So you see a range of individuals across the Arab world begin then discussing the legitimacy. These are, this is not an American ambassador over there. These are actual legitimate, in most cases, very conservative Sunni clerics, imams uh, that uh, target uh, al-Qaeda. About the same time, Zawahiri gets into very serious conflicts with Hamas, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. The point here is there is a very, very important struggle uh, from a U.S. perspective that's going on just underneath the surface in the, in the Arab press, uh, through email, and in a range of areas about the legitimacy of al-Qaeda's message. And I think over the last three or four years, we've seen a very, very serious pushback against the legitimacy. So much so that if you look at the public opinion polls against al-Qaeda, uh, what you see in general is a massive decrease from fairly high levels, even in countries like Jordan, uh, which is where al-Qaeda's leader uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was from. You see major decreases in support for uh, al-Qaeda even in Pakistan. And it, I think uh, we're likely to see increasing um, problems with uh, al-Qaeda's uh, legitimacy over time. So again, there is a fundamental struggle going on in the war of ideas. Now, one of the things that's interesting along these lines is we're not as well prepared, I think, to take advantage of that. During the Cold War, we had a U.S. government institution, the U.S. Information Agency, whose primary mission was to help push out uh, and get involved in, in a lot of these media, in, in including some of the more advanced social media of the time. The USIA was abolished several years ago, uh, so we don't have that. It, we do have the Voice of America and a few other um, organizations, but nothing along the lines of what we have in U.S. Uh, uh, what 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 we had with the U.S. Information Agency. It's a very serious, I would say, um, uh, issue that we still need to uh, grapple with. Is is what is our contribution to this war of ideas? How aware are Americans of that? And and what this comes down to, in a sense, is that part of this struggle is with kids. It's with these individuals like Zazi with Alaki, with Adam Gadan from Winchester, California, who radicalize and join uh, the organization or decide that they're going to blow themselves up on a subway. Why are they doing it? Why are they listening to these individuals? And so part of the next stage of the research that, that I'd like to look at is look at the variations in radicalization. But this is a struggle. This is, this is now al-Qaeda's number one. This is Zawahiri. And he says this a couple of years ago in, in what's an intercepted uh, letter to, at the time, al-Qaeda's head in Iraq. And he says, I quote, I say to you that we are in a battle, and more than half of this battle is in the battlefield of the media, and that we are in a, a media battle in a race for the hearts and minds of our ummah. They recognize as well that ultimately their survival, their very survival, is probably less an issue on the military battlefield and more an issue in the realm of ideas. And that's a struggle that I think we are probably not as well prepared as we need to be. But in addition to that, just to summarize and conclude here, what we're talking about, not just in the U.S. homeland, the, the, the uh, efforts I mentioned earlier, but I think what, what we're seeing is a slightly more decentralized 
um, al-Qaeda, uh, which will, uh, as we decrease forces in Iraq to close to zero, as now we're decreasing forces in Afghanistan, this will become likely an increasingly clandestine presence overseas. And what we're seeing is these threats to the U.S. emanating from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Yemen, parts of North Africa, and parts of East Africa. So part of this map, I think, highlights part of where not just the war of ideas is happening, because that's, ha- that's happening not just in physical locations, but through social media. But we're also seeing, in general, uh, a, struggle, a physical struggle in a range of these places. Again, the U.S. footprint looks like it will increasingly uh, be smaller, but the struggle will be uh, intense. So if I can just conclude with a couple of comments, um, uh, I would say a few things. One is the death of bin Laden does not mean the threat to the homeland has significantly decreased. What we're seeing in general with the threat picture is serious. And uh, I would remind everybody that several of the recent plots in the United States, uh, Faisal Shahzad's Times Square bomb, the underwear bomber in 2009 on, uh, on Christmas Day, his bomb didn't go off, but he got it onto the location he wanted. That was a technical problem. So we've come very close, and in that case, he got through detection because the bomb that, that, uh, that was put together specifically uh, by al-Qaeda in Yemen, that's where he picked it up. That was, it was actually specifically designed for Abdul Mutalab. It was designed in a way that it had no metal on it, so he walked through metal detectors in multiple airports in Africa, and then in Amsterdam, where he got onto his plane that took him to Detroit. So we still are facing a threat. Alaki st- still continues. Uh, Zawahiri still continues and is now the head of Al-Qaeda. Uh, we still have a serious threat. Where we move on to next, I think, is uh, continuing to work with the range of the countries in these areas, uh, which obviously is problematic. We've seen it with Pakistan and that relationship even in the last few days. Um, as well as a battle, uh, a battle uh, in, in the uh, ideological realm. So uh, that probably raises more questions than it answers, uh, but what I wanted to do is give you a little bit more perspective, I think, on what after bin Laden means, and then we can talk a little bit more specifically about any issues along these lines that you're interested in. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have time for a few short audience questions, so please raise your hand, and my associate, Nora, and I will come over and uh, get you. Keep your questions short so we can get to as many as possible. I have the first question here. What level of support does al-Qaeda enjoy in Afghanistan? And in your concentric circle model that you had the slide earlier, where does the Taliban fit into that model? Good question. Uh, Levels of support in Afghanistan are fairly low in general among the population. They pull pretty low. I mean, it's less than 1% support uh, al-Qaeda. At the same time, though, your question about uh, Taliban puts us into that lower right category of allied groups because there are several allied groups that continue to have a relationship with al-Qaeda and its senior leaders, including Zawahiri. They do include 
Mullah Muhammad Omar and the, some of the senior Taliban leaders. They do include uh, the second largest insurgent group in Afghanistan, the Haqqanis, which have a very close relationship with al-Qaeda. And there are, include others. There's an individual named Gulbuddin Hekmachar who runs the Hezbollah Islami organization, also an insurgent group. Uh, they have a relationship with al-Qaeda. They're based in the northern parts of the Afghan-Pakistan border regions. The concern, I think, and the implication here is that what would probably not be a good end state, no matter what the U.S. downsizing looks like, whatever the slope of that curve is, if the U.S. comes out slow or fast, what would probably be a, 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 a really negative outcome uh, is a Taliban takeover of the country for two reasons. One is we've seen what a Taliban government looks like. It is repressive, uh, women not allowed to work. It, is an, it has been, frankly, one of the most repressive regimes over the last several decades. Second, it still has a relationship with, uh, with al-Qaeda and, and several other militant groups. In fact, the Taliban shares a relationship with the Pakistan Taliban, who's conducted an attack in uh, t- uh, tried in Times Square with Shazad. So I, I, I would say a concern would be uh, a Taliban that controls broader swaths of the country, ultimately the capital itself, which it did by 1996, um, presents a real serious problem. So we're kind of st- stuck here in between trying to prevent that kind of outcome and where we are now, which is downsizing. And I think that, that's where the analytical debate is now uh, starting to occur as to what are the acceptable costs and benefits of the strategy as we move forward, because it will go down. The president has made this clear. We have a question in the front. Right now, the most pressing issue, as you will agree, is Pakistan. They just arrested five people who were helping the CIA on the Osama bin Laden, and we're giving him $8 billion. What do we do? <laughs> that is a, the, the Pakistan relationship is an incredibly complicated one for several reasons. Uh, one is, uh, and, and we've, we've actually gone through some of the analytical work in a range of RAND reports. We know in Afghanistan that uh, elements of the government have provided assistance to Afghan insurgent groups that are fighting American forces on the ground. Um, uh, Pakistan has also been helpful in targeting a range of militant groups in the Swat Valley and in Bajor and Momand in northern parts of the tribal areas. They have actively, at, probably out of any ally we have, uh, they have lost the most soldiers and police in active combat missions. But the reality is this, and this is the stark reality we face. Pakistan's interests, strategic interests, are different from the United States. Uh, groups that we care about and are concerned about, they are not necessarily concerned about. So if one was to draw a Venn diagram, there are areas well outside of uh, that overlap. There are areas in the middle which we may share some concerns about, uh, but there are areas outside of it. Trying to manage that relationship uh, will continue to be difficult. Providing the amounts of money that we are providing right now is probably going to be unsustainable over the long run. But I will say this, though, that uh, having no relationship with the Pakistan government and having most of the major insurgent groups up here operating in Pakistan uh, also puts us in a, would, would put us in a very serious bind. I understand that keeping your foot in the door is very important strategically, but they just arrested five people. What do we do about that? 
with, with this specific case? This is, this is the same case, I, I, uh, same situation that we've, uh, we've uh, had to deal with on multiple occasions. They arrested uh, a CIA contractor. Uh, we've had border uh, disputes. There, was, uh, there have been multiple incidents over the past several years where American gunships have killed Pakistan soldiers on the border because we thought they were insurgents. We've got to work through it. We have registered a protest uh, with the government. Uh, there is an active effort to get those individuals released. This is the nature of the relationship right now. It's not an ideal one. I think you know, every government official, including at the Pentagon, has been very clear. This is a difficult situation, uh, but I think this is the way that relationship is probably going to proceed for the foreseeable future. We have a question in the back here. Hi, thank you so much for bringing us this uh, conversation. I want to ask about counterinsurgency versus counterterrorism. Why do we need 100,000-plus troops to maintain order in Afghanistan versus dealing with al-Qaeda in Yemen or Sudan or Somalia? Uh, good question. Um, this really comes down to uh, one or several important issues. One of them is counterinsurgency doctrine, interestingly, has a range of different force ratios. Some of them, if you look back at some of the historical work that Rand has done by individuals like Jim Quinlivan, actually identify rough ratios of what you need to secure or pacify an area. What's interesting about those is they don't necessarily uh, uh, identify whether they are local or in indigenous or international forces. I think 10 years into this uh, fight, I testified before the Senate Foreign Relations on this subject a couple of weeks ago, is uh, I think what we're seeing in parts of southern Afghanistan now is a very interesting dynamic. Uh, what we're seeing uh, is probably the most serious pushback against the Taliban uh, over the last eight years in the south. It's their primary center of gravity. Uh, provinces like Helmand, Kandahar, Ruzgan, Zabal, they have lost territory. Uh, and the primary, the, the, really the primary reason they have lost territory is that you've got active local Afghan, not national security forces, locals that are revolting across multiple districts in Ruzgan. Part of the issue, and I think that, be, that has become clear, is I think force levels, it appears, can continue to come down as long as you're getting active resistance from locals. Because I think ultimately what matters in any counterinsurgency, and there's a whole range of good RAND uh, products on how insurgencies end, how terrorist groups end, uh, is that when you have local agencies, whether they're from the host government or um, sub-state actors, uh, local security forces, when you get resistance like that, uh, we saw it in Malaysia, uh, in Malaya, Oman, and a range of other places. At that point, I think the strongest likelihood uh, that insurgent groups will lose. So part of, the, part of what it looks like is the case in southern Afghanistan is there are much larger numbers of Afghans that are willing to resist. That's a good thing. And I think that probably means in a range of areas like that, U.S. forces can come down and primarily maintain training missions, and the Afghans take the lead in uh, uh, conducting counterinsurgency. We have a question in the front. From a world historical perspective, when we look at the 19 individuals that attacked the World Trade Center and the affiliated big organization and their activities through the world, how is this distinguished, say, from uh, any other highly alienated terrorist group uh, like the IRA 
And why is, uh, what is the justification for the scale of our international presence relative to that kind of uh, initiation? Well, I think one of the biggest differences, frankly, is the global scope of this organization. Uh, IRA had a financial presence in a range of places, including the United States. Uh, It was primarily geared towards a fight in Northern Ireland. What al-Qaeda has done, and, and, and I think ultimately this will doom it, is, uh, is it has taken off a huge chunk of territory. Uh, that territory that I mentioned earlier, it, it has taken off a huge chunk of territory where it wants to uh, target, actively target the host nations and its outside supporters. That means the, the, near, uh, you know, the, the, the near enemy the Egyptian government, the Yemeni government, the Pakistani government, and the far enemy, the Americans, the British, the Canadians, and others. So I, I think in that sense, that makes this a slightly different from the British situation, which means you've got, in a sense, multiple Northern Irelands, not just one location, but uh, in general, based on where they're getting access, uh, you've got a situation in Yemen, you've got one in Pakistan and Afghanistan, because that's actually what they are actively trying to do, and how they've done it is they've co-opted local terrorist groups. The Libyan Islamic Fighting Group in Libya co-opted the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. Al-Shabaab in Somalia co-opted, established a relationship with Al-Shabaab. So they have effectively cooperated with local groups, in many cases turned them into affiliates, changed their name to Al-Qaeda. So it's, it's really the IRA in multiple different countries. That's the difference, I think, between most of the serious terrorist groups that we've seen and what we see now with al-Qaeda. We have a question in the back. Is there a typical profile of an individual who is likely to become a homegrown terrorist? No. Uh, no. In fact, in, in the, uh, you know, one of the more interesting cases is the uh, JFK airport plot. Uh, that was led by a man named Russell Dufrades, uh and linked back into the Caribbean. Uh, all of those individuals were uh, above the age of 50. I think Dufrades was like 63. So um, uh, most of them have tended to be, virtually all of them, they've had support networks, but virtually all of them have been men. Uh, but the age group has varied. The uh, ethnic group has varied. Uh, Jose Padilla, who was captured um, in 2002 at the Chicago O'Hare Airport, was, uh, uh, was a, um, a Latino American. So we've got Latinos, we've got, we've got Arabs, we've got Pakistanis, we've got Afghans, we've got Nigerians. It was the underwear bomber. So uh, it's happening in multiple different ethnic groups, multiple different ages, Multiple different um, at, uh, levels of education. Uh, Abdul Mutalab was the uh, the uh, underwear bomber. Was well educated. He'd gotten a master's degree. He'd studied in part at the London School of Economics. Uh, extremely well educated. So what we're not seeing is a very specific profile of an individual. Uh, and I think what what Al Qaeda has been looking more towards is, frankly. Uh, individuals who have a legitimate American passport or somebody who can come in from a country that's got an active visa waiver, like the United Kingdom, France, Spain. Um, that's, that's the kind of individual they're looking for across a range of ethnicities, age groups, et cetera. I have a question in the middle. 
Oh, you know, uh, in view of the fact that, uh, like, Indonesia is the largest Islamic country in the world, is there any uh, interest in uh, al-Qaeda development there, or is, is that a threat to us? Uh, what, what we've seen in Indonesia, the Philippines, um, is uh, pretty serious efforts to counter most of those groups. Al-Qaeda at one point had had inroads into both Indonesia and the Philippines, but at this point uh, there were active captures of several uh, leading individuals, some defections in the 2001, 2, 3, 4 period. Uh, but at this point, I would say we don't see today a major threat coming from Indonesia, the Philippines, or in general, Southeast Asia, certainly to the homeland. Uh, now, if you ask the uh, Australians, they will still tell you that uh, it's difficult to target Australia. So the Australians have had concerns in Bali and a range of places where Australians will actually go vacation. So uh, when I say the United States... You know, there certainly are allies that have serious threats in those areas. I have a question to your left. Um, one, why was USIA allowed to wither? And two, in light of the Mumbai attack, uh, what is the chances of India and Pakistan having another hot war? I don't know the answer to your first uh, question on why uh, USIA was disbanded. Uh, as for the second one, look, I, I think uh, you have uh, a group, Lashkari Taiba, that has been involved in multiple attacks in India. In fact, what's interesting, if you followed the Chicago trial uh, recently with uh, Rana and David Headley, um, you had the primary individual, this goes back to, I think, a threat we still face, the primary individual who's doing the intelligence surveillance of all the sites that Lashkari Taiba was going to hit. And if you haven't seen the HBO, um, uh, HBO's got a great, real documentary with the signals intelligence intercepts actually in the movie along these lines. What, what I think that trial indicated is, is the main individual who did the reconnaissance was from Chicago and lived in Chicago. But I think what, what that indicates is Lashkari Taiba continues to plot attacks in India. And so I, I, I would certainly suspect, uh, and we've seen it close, the last war was 1999 in Cargill, uh, that it's certainly possible another attack happens in India and you get very serious tension. Now, the fact that both countries have nuclear weapons probably means that they're going to be real careful. Uh, you might have border skirmishes, very limited aim strikes, uh, probably not a full-scale war just because of the repercussions. But uh, tensions are high, um, and uh, that would obviously have serious implications for, for the U.S. We have a question in the back. Yes, uh, Dr. Jones, thanks again for this evening. This is a great opportunity. Can you share with us what uh, your picture looks like um, for that part of the world in maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years when our dependence on energy will shift and maybe um, the outsourcing of our government in terms of our military might change? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, I'd, I'd actually be interested in, in other people's views here. Um, I, you know, I'm actually not sure um, it's going to change much for those reasons because, again, what we're talking about here is a struggle for ideas. And frankly, as long as the United States has a relationship with some of these countries, um, and, and it does because they continue to have groups there that are plotting attacks against the homeland, 
I, I still think the primary issue is this is an ideological struggle. So no matter what the U.S.'s interests are, its oil interests or other strategic interests are in other areas, as long as there are groups from an ideological perspective that are committed to attacking the U.S. homeland because they want to overthrow multiple regimes, I think it will still present a problem. And as long as those groups exist and continue to push that ideology, whatever you know, the U.S.'s oil needs are or other needs, it presents a serious challenge. We have time for one final audience question to your left. I'm curious. I, uh, the northern part of Afghanistan is, uh, has a very, very large percentage of ethnic Uzbeks. Yet in the discussions, I never hear anything about Uzbekistan nor Tajikistan nor Kyrgyzstan. And do not these peripheral stands have anything to do with the issues that we're discussing tonight? Of course they do. Uh, and interestingly, Iran didn't come up either. But uh, what we see in a range of these countries, including Afghanistan, is all the neighbors are involved, especially when we're talking about weak states, they're all involved to some degree. Um, now, with the stands especially for Afghanistan, we actually see a fair amount of uh, cooperation or at least uh, areas of potential cooperation on counter-narcotics. Uh, there's a lot of opium, uh, uh, a poppy that's grown in Afghanistan, mostly shipped off towards Eastern Europe, uh, but a lot of it comes through the stand, so it's led to a rise in uh, criminal networks that there have been, there's been a vested interest in combating. Uh, there are militant groups, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, that has a direct relationship with al-Qaeda. So uh, there is a need uh, for those and other reasons. Frankly, even, even if, if you look at a lot of the um, uh, you know, petroleum, foodstuffs that comes into U.S. forces in Afghanistan, it actually comes through the stands, not just Pakistan. So I, I think in that sense, there is a, a very important need to have some relationship with some of those countries on practical grounds um, and to encourage uh, more freedom along the lines as well. But no, they're very important uh, in, this, in this debate. Um, if I can just conclude with one or two comments, uh, don't mean to discourage anybody from riding airplanes or getting onto metros, although you don't have that problem in Los Angeles, thankfully. Yet. You don't have yeah. a metro. <laughs> we do in Washington. Uh, but it did, did, did at least want to leave you, I think, with a notion not to get too complacent because I think we still have, we still have a, a, a struggle uh, that we are working with. And I think it's useful for institutions like RAND to continue analytically to assess the situation and to think through objective solutions in dealing with them. And that's what we're here for. Thank it, you, Seth. It? Thanks very much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.